0: iyo.com. Do you know how many emails are sent per day globally? 270 billion every single day. That's an overwhelming number to compete with when you're trying to reach customers. What about inbox placement? Maybe you have a 99% deliverability rate, but how many of those emails are getting trapped in the spam folder? In today's world, your email marketing program has to be one component of a holistic, data-driven approach to marketing. Get advanced targeting and AI-powered personalization without sacrificing deliverability. Learn how at bloomreach.com slash wavebreak. That's bloomreach.com slash wavebreak. (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Wavebreak podcast, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with some of the fastest growing consumer brands. I'm your host, Dylan Kelly, founder and CEO of Wavebreak. Wavebreak is a full service email and CRM agency. We're partnering with some of the top brands to help them maximize revenue from their existing customers and email list traffic. All of that. The reality is, most brands have overlooked email and SMS. Even still, over the last two years, we've seen brands double down more and more, um, but they're just executing basic strategies. And I want to tell you today, we were recently going over data uh, internally with a couple team members. Uh, about a new segmentation strategy that we've been testing. Now, I'm not going to reveal it on the show because I don't want everybody to go do it and then it's not going to work as well. Uh, But we're able to more than double campaign revenue and I'll keep you updated on the results. But the way it works is we're expanding that traditional segmentation strategy that most brands have and making it even more targeted while at the same time opening up the size of the list. I'll leave it at that. um, But it's a really effective strategy for increasing revenue within your existing email and SMS program. And there's a hundred different ways that you're probably not maximizing revenue within your program today that can add hundreds of thousands or millions of revenue to your brand. I see this every single month with the clients that we work with, we're unlocking more and more revenue, even if we're working with them, you know, on year five of our partnership. And so if you want to learn more about partnering with us, you can do so by heading to wavebreak.co link is down in the show notes below. And you schedule a call, you learn more about the brands that we work with, how we've helped them and how we can help you do the same. Today on the show, I'm really excited. I am joined by Brad Day, who is the CEO of Helm Boots. He got his start at Adidas and TaylorMade, and then ended up at a DTC startup that he had to completely pivot and turn around into the brand that it is today. Helm Boots. We chat about everything that he learned in his corporate career and learnings that he took to the DTC side, as well as what he learned in his DTC career um, and how he manages profitability as a CEO with a focus on marketing and operations. This is a must listen for the current state of DTC and marketing and just the the economy in general. Um, Really great, really great conversation. And uh, we also just riff on the footwear industry in general towards the end. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me, Don. Yeah, I'm really excited to really excited to chat. So before we dive into you know nitty gritty of operating a D2C brand in today's uh, environment, would love to hear at a high level Helm Boots for the people who haven't heard of it. Uh, what is Helm Boots, and also how did you get involved with the brand?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so Helm Boots, we make kind of modern. Uh, modernized versions of the classic footwear for men. So, elevated men's footwear, um, a lot of leather products and just really beautiful, um, leather footwear for, for men. Um, you know, we're based out of Austin, Texas. We produce a lot of our stuff down in, in Brazil, still u- u- utilizing U.S. hides. And it's something that I've been involved in for, I would say six or seven years now. And so, I spent the first 16 years of my, my career with the adidas brand working kind of all over the world started in portland spent some time in germany spent some time down in southern california and then when we were in austin texas got hooked up with the founder of helm boots at the time who was looking for an operator to come sit beside him and help operate the business and scale it and you know in that kind of traditional role allow him to be the best version of his founder of a founder focus on the things he was passionate with and have an operator kind of handle some of the other things and so that's How I originally got involved with Helm, um, six, seven years—I can't even keep track. I mean, the, the small business startup world, like, is just kind of a blur.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What was it like when you originally got involved with the brand? Like, who whose idea was it to get involved, and like, what was going through your mind after you have like, you know, I don't know how much experience you had at that point in the corporate world, but like, you know, very air quotes safe job compared to you know running a small startup what was you know how did that happen and then what was your initial reaction to you know jumping into a company like that
1: yeah i mean it was it was pretty eye opening i mean i i came from you know a 19 billion dollar organization right and so you just think of you know and this is one of the dynamics that exists when i when i think about our own business here but i talk to you know other small business owners or or companies that i advise and stuff is this this concept of being resource rich and resource deficient, right? And like, how do you operate your business without any resources, right? And a lot of times that's people and money. When you're at Adidas, there's money and there's people and there's lots of it. And there's lots of really smart people. And so when you come to the startup world, it was very eye opening that both of those were were scarce, right? And I remember thinking, you know, 30 days into this thing and being like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I just you know i just gave up my 401k my nice <laughs> bonus structure you know and you, you know a company that i i was very familiar with how to navigate just relationships and the operating like you know 16 years of the place you you know who to talk to you know how to get things, things done and now you're kind of starting over from scratch and and you're building those infrastructures and you're building those processes and and uh you realize that it's a lot of work and i i think i even remember the first time we we got a an order from Zappos. It was like one of the first big deals that we closed when I started. And I remember when I, when we used to get orders at Adidas from Zappos, you would take the order. You we'd work with the sales rep and then you would pass it to customer service. And then they would pass it to the, you know, the finance and the payables team. And there's probably 15, 20 people that touch this, you know, we're sitting here being like, wow, we've got to like figure out what systems we need to do it. We've got to like pack 300 boots in these boxes. We've got to, we got going to label them right. And then we've got to, I mean, it was just all of these things. We're like, there was four of us in a warehouse in the back of the office trying to figure out how to fulfill a Zappos order. And it just, you realize like how scarce your resources are and and it makes you be more efficient with your decision-making and your priority setting because there's just not people and money to do everything that that you want to do.
0: Yeah. And when you if came in your d- person, 30 days. Are- I was like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) When you came in, did you have like a plan? Like, did you look at the business and you're like, this is so ripe for opportunity because they don't know what they're doing. They're just a few people in a warehouse. Or was it kind of like, I'm going to go in, see what it's like and then make a plan. Or like, what was your... Because you're like, I got the Zappos deal right away. like, what was the thought process behind that?
1: The Zappos deal
0: came about six months later. So it wasn't... Oh, six months in. Got it, got it.
1: Um, I didn't come in with a plan. I, I, you know, I... You, you learn a lot in these processes. I think for me, I always wanted to run a business and I spent my time at Adidas doing lots of different functions across the organization so that I could have experience in a lot of different things. But I, I you know, in all instances, I wasn't prepared and I didn't have a plan. And my, my, you know, my objectives were to come in and learn and listen and see what the business needed. And I think what we found very quickly was that. At least for us that the some of the money, the professional money that had been raised was was not going to last and that we had a business model that wasn't going to work. And so six months into the business, outside of having a Zappos business and, and stuff like this, we had to go to the board of directors and say, hey, this business model is broken. It's not scalable, right? And that's something I always talk about is, of building businesses around like everything's got to be able to scale. Um, and it's not going to work. So we we presented an alternative plan that said we we can we can turn this around. We'll take us about three years to reconstruct and rebuild our model, but this is really the only way this thing is going to work. Otherwise, we should probably shut it down and, and just and move on. And that was a you know a, a proposition that we made to them. And and a big piece of that was shifting to a, a new model of and becoming a, more of a digitally native direct to consumer company. And so that was a big. Shift so that was about six months in, um, you know, right around when we were moving things forward in the in the current model. But we had to kind of go to them and say we're blowing this thing up. It just doesn't work. Uh, we're just going to continue to spin our wheels. Or you know, there was there was all sorts of things involved in our in our business model change. But one of them was how we we're going to market, how we we're going to talk to it, and, and and there was just some margin issues with the business um, that we had to we had to fix.
0: Got it. And what was the old business, and then what was the new business? In terms of like old and new model.
1: Yeah, the old model was just more of a traditional model of you know, like wholesale retail, wholesale business, an uh, own store, and then doing a little online. I think that the challenge that we discovered is for our type of footwear, there's not really a a boutique um, wholesale model that that is profitable, right? You think of all the men's clothing stores around the country, right? And we all have our favorite ones. There's very little footwear in there. Right. And so, yeah, you men, you know, Nordstrom's there's there's these big box channels that that are there. But it's really hard to have, you know, three, four hundred boutiques with your footwear. It's just very expensive. uh, Takes up a lot of room, takes a lot of inventory dollars. It doesn't turn as fast. And so you end up with this model of loading in five thousand dollars, taking back twenty five hundred. And so that whole model was kind of broken. So we we basically said. We're going direct to consumer. We're gonna we're gonna pause our wholesale business. Uh, we're gonna get our margins right, and that involved kind of phasing out of made in America production and and outsourcing to and building an international supply chain. So we took our margins from forty percent to sixty percent over about an eighteen month stretch, which then allowed us to get back into wholesale business with some higher margins and product at a better price. So instead of you know having forty percent you know, gross margins in products that cost $500 for customers. We're able to have 60% margins and have our boots and shoes sit in, you know, 250 to 295 and have good margin for, um, you know, a, a wholesale business now, right? So in, in a month and a half, we're going to launch in Nordstrom's in 50 doors, right? And that's oh, wow. a massive um, achievement for a brand like us and, you know, huge exposure with what I think is the the premier, you know, men's footwear shopping environment left in the States. If you want to shop for a broad selection, like that's where you need to go. And so it's been this, you know, cycle of building these steps in the business, but we had to kind of break out of the old model of the types of products we were making, where we were making them, where we were trying to sell them. Um, And then at the same time, building all that infrastructure, but also building a direct consumer marketing funnel. Right. And so that is, you know, kind of right up your alley with all of the components of, you know, building a community and and taking care of that community, acquiring customers, keeping them, um, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And so you come in and you're like, okay, these margins aren't going to work. We have to switch to this new model. And one of the, you know, biggest levers we're going to pull is, you know, looking at our operations, seeing how we can manufacture this product cheaper, was that a project that then you went and figured out? Like, is that similar to what your role was at Adidas and made? Or was this also like starting from scratch and like, I don't know what I'm doing, but we're going to figure out how to make these shoes cheaper.
1: You know, it's, I mean, I built a lot of product. And so I I, I was familiar with product and supply chains. Um, but I, you know, I never had, I mean, my role was never working, you know, with the suppliers on on probably that level. Um, and so like everything we've done around our business and, you know, we've gone out and we've tried to find experts that were, that were great at a very specific thing. And so we hired someone to, to help me, um, who had a robust network in kind of South America on, on building shoes. Right. And so we worked with him to find leather suppliers and find manufacturers. And, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a project that, that I took on and, as kind of the merchant and the product, the product person and of the team, right? So we all have core competencies and some have to do other things, but like, I always, I've always kind of taken the lead on product creation and, and sourcing and design and stuff like that within the organization. And so that was, that was something that I took on. And, and for us, it was, it was, you know, there was lots of, there's lots of places to build shoes all over the world. We had to find a place that to build the type of product that we wanted to build the way we wanted to build it in the quality that we wanted to build that. Cause we knew that we, we couldn't, we couldn't just try to find somebody in place to make the products cheaper. We had to have, find somebody to make them just as good if, or just as good, if not better. Right. And cause we did have some limitations. And so it took a while to find that supplier.
0: Yeah. And where did that supplier end up being based? Cause I don't think they're based in China from what I can remember from no. my research.
1: No. So all of our, uh, it's all done down in Brazil now.
0: And then, all right. So you got the, you have the product all figured out. You've got these margins at the same time. Are you also trying to like scale and grow revenue or did you kind of put that on pause while you're trying to do that? Like, how did you balance like this huge operational shift while at the same time, you know, focusing on the business because you have, you know, investor money that's running out or whatever you yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, we, we put together and we, we talked about a three-year plan. We, you know, we call it our three-year plan. We call it Helm 3.0 was, uh, it was like the third version of the organization. And we kind of nice. had a great path to profitability. And, um, you know, we had a revenue objective, like objectives. And that was one of the, the things. We couldn't be just, hey, we're going to go work on this thing for two years. And then hopefully it comes out. We had to perform in the same time, right? And so as we were working on our margin profiles and creating products and things like that, we were also building this marketing infrastructure that allowed us to acquire customers and sell the current products that we were um current making. Um, and, and so that was kind of all part of that. And then we had really, really great success out of the gates. I mean, year one and two of that plan, we grew 150% each year, you know, around there. And so we were kind of, you know, doing exactly what we wanted to do in terms of the revenue targets that we put in place. We were seeing margin improvements. Um, like I said, going from 40 to 60% and transitioning, you know, from, you know at one you know, 50 50 you know u.s production and brazil production to eventually ramping up to 100 brazil production um so the the tough part is that year three of our our plan was 2020 and right so running into covid does not help your you know for a for a business like ours where people wear our products to travel and go to offices and weddings and events and date nights and all those things like when people stop doing all those things, it, it kind of hurts your ability to hit year three of your path to profitability. And so it just very much shifted uh, the entire organization and our focus again, right? So COVID became Helm 4.0, like the fourth version of the company. So it's been, it's it's always, it's never boring in the, the small business startup world.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So you, you've got the manufacturing switched over. Did you change the pricing of the product? Or no, the pricing was the same the whole time. You just got the mar the better margin after moving the manufacturing.
1: Um, Both. We, we did lower our, we lowered our costs. So originally we lowered them. We've, we've, we've had kind of two significant price changes. One, we lowered them um, just off the bat before we ever switched manufacturers, just because we felt that the product was too expensive and that the price value compared to competitors was, was too much for being an unknown. To being more expensive than kind of the standards by by a significant amount wasn't wasn't allowing us to have growth. The second significant price change we we did was during COVID when we looked at just some of the market dynamics. We we listened to customers, we talked to some key accounts and and vendors and buyers that we have relationships with, and we just began to adjust where we think the price value for our product is, and and in utilizing kind of feedback from customers with with sales data of great, that seems like a, the right price for that specific that specific product.
0: Got it. And, and was that like then pushing the price back up to like a, a better sweet spot? You know,
1: not yet. Um, okay. we, we have not gone back up and adjusted our prices. We feel that it's pretty powerful or we feel that having all of our products under $300 is a, is a really good position for us in a brand. Um, you know, we're not the, mo- we're not the cheapest. We still make really, really quality products. And I was talking to somebody before, they're like, what, what else could you do to build your products better? And I was like, there's really nothing. Right. And so when I look at a, somebody who's building an $800 boot compared to our $300, like, they're, they're not doing anything different than we're doing, you know, outside right. of obscure, you know, endangered leathers or, you know, something like that. <laughs> like we, we but use Maybe you don't
0: want anyway.
1: Yeah, I'm like that's I mean I we're not you know that's just not we're not using these you know obscure like alligator leathers or like really like you know we we have a certain type of hide and a thickness of leather that allows a product to last for for years and years and years um and so we build the infrastructure of the boot to to support that so um you know we haven't gone up there's a few products that we have we had a shoe that was a lower priced product that we took back up um you know during you know, over the last like, 18 months, um, which made, you know, it's been the right decision.
0: Yeah. In terms w- when you lowered the price, did you see like any increase in conversion rate overnight or like any efficiencies in marketing change with a lower price? Y-
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, we definitely saw, you know, some immediate impact from existing customers that were, they understood the value they were getting. But I think because we were small and so much of our, our growth and our model requires a new customer acquisition, right? And, and almost, you know, we target 70% of revenue coming from new customers every month that those customers didn't really know. Right. So if you're a kind of a small entity um acquiring a lot of new customers, they have no idea what you've done uh, and, and where you've been or where your price points have, have been. And I remember listening to some you know genius marketing guy on on some podcast that we all listened to once was just like, listen, everybody's so scared about taking your prices up and down, and then, you know, he's like, listen, if you're not if you're not Apple with the iPhone, most of the time people don't really know and remember, right? Like as long as you're doing it responsibly and, and you communicate and 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 people understand why for the ones that are paying attention, but you you can play around a little bit with with some of your price points to make sure that you have the margin and. That your business is healthy, but also that um, you know, you're trying to drive, find that balance between you know conversions and um and margin.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think most people remember, I think it's a scary thing to do necessarily, but you know, even a couple months ago, I remember reading, like, you know, the mom and pops during times of inflation are more at risk than any other business because you know, an executive at McDonald's is like just increase prices and they take the feeling out of the equation, and then like the mom and pop, you know, it's a very personal thing. And, you know, it's, it's definitely difficult to do. Um, but, you know, I think we've seen throughout the last couple of years, it's very necessary to keep your business, um, you know, in the best performing state it can be.
1: I remember I I was talking to a CEO of another footwear company and he was telling me that early on, you know, they had their, their product priced at let's say $150. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't doing what it needed to do. And he's like, so we increased it to 165. And he's like, it increased, sales started to go up. And then he's like, we took it to 175. And he's like, they went up even more. And he's like, because of the store, they were trying, they were telling a a premium story that the premium materials and construction, all that stuff. And people were like, there's no way at 150 that it's good enough. Yeah. So he just like, great. We got and he's like, we tried to go even higher. And people were like, no, 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 no. So he came back down, but he had to like play that game of validating the quality and the craftsmanship and the materials, but not going too high that now he was pricing himself out. But it was that kind of interesting, you know, um, thought process and, and exercise that he went through with his company to find the right price value with for his product. Because at the end of the day, like customers can decide, like if your stuff's worth it or not, they'll, they'll buy it or they won't. So
0: yeah, a- for sure. I mean, I look at, you know, half the stuff from these luxury brands, and I'm like, I don't even know who's paying, you know, $1,500 for these flip flops that look like I drew on them with a marker, but you know, more, <laughs> more power to them. Although I'm not sure, like, like who does buy that? Do you have any idea? Uh, well,
1: I'm, you know, I remember my wife bought a pair of sneakers probably five years ago and they were, you know, $500 sneakers. And I was just like, and she, my wife, you know, worked at Adidas for a long time as well. And I'm like, you know how much those cost to make.
0: Yeah, I'm like you
1: know, you know how much they cost, and she loves them, and you know, um it's so. I mean, they didn't win the argument, but it was just like that, right? Yeah. Like, you know, brands and and what they, you know, like they're powerful, but I was like, oh, I, I bet you that shoe only costs fifteen dollars to make. I'm like, you know, it's just kind of, but I, you know, I. That's why I have a hard time paying retail retail for anything. Um, totally. To kind of get the inside of what it costs to make stuff.
0: This episode is brought to you by Tidio, the highest-rated live chat software on Shopify. Through live chat, chat chatbots, and ticketing, Tidio helps Shopify merchants gain and retain more customers with personalized shopping experiences. With Tidio, you can recommend products and offer discounts based on user behavior and order history, all without leaving the chat widget. This increases conversions and revenue. Tidio also takes the pressure off your support team. The app enables you to manage all of your communication channels in one dashboard and to be able to automate up to 47% of recurring questions. If you want to increase sales and customer satisfaction with personalized shopping experiences, visit tidio.com/leaders. That's t slash i o.com/leaders to start using Tidio Premium. And I was able to get an exclusive discount for listeners, so make sure you use that link and promo code LEADERS. It's going to be linked down in the show notes below, but use that link and that code to get an exclusive discount, all while leveraging the highest rated live chat software on Shopify. Go check them out. You know, and thinking through the different levers of, like, profitability, that's something you kind of touched on before with, you know... All right, we can move our manufacturing, we can look into pricing. Like, what are the main things that you look at in terms of like, you know, because D2C has changed a lot, um, but like, what are some of the levers you look at for like maximizing profitability? Like, are you looking into marketing for that too? Is that something that's important to roll up to you? How do you think about, you know, maximizing profitability in these times where it's even more important as a brand?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think marketing, especially when the direct to consumer thing is the most important, the more important piece, right? So you can, we can adjust the supply chain right and we can have a great relationship with a uh, with a production facility and and we know that they're going to produce a product for x price we we can you know have a 3pl that warehouses our product and we know that when an order comes in it, it costs this much to fulfill it and get it to a customer right outside of like some of those things right and then your overhead and your people and your staff and all that stuff but how you market and how effective your marketing is is the most important piece right because if you can't acquire customers for the the costs that you've modeled out right and you you can't repeat customer purchases in the at the the cadence and the timing that you plan to um then your whole system breaks down right and you know if it, if you think it cost you 50 bucks and all of a sudden it cost you a hundred dollars to acquire a customer you know the the margin you had after product costs and fulfillment costs and all of those things it just breaks down and you stop producing the margin and the revenue that you want right so having an understanding of those acquisition costs and then you know circling back to what we talked about earlier is are those acquisition costs scalable right and if you you're spending a you know a thousand dollars a month now, if I give you two thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars a month to do that, is it profitable scaling? Right, the days of direct to consumer companies just being able to continuously like throw money and acquire customers and and think they're going to have an exit or somebody's going to acquire them because they've got a massive list of people, but they're you know, not profitable. You're no longer going to see somebody spend hundred million dollars to get a hundred million dollar business. Right, it's just and lose. You know, hundred million dollars. Right? Like, it's just not going to happen anymore. So, the marketing piece, right at the top, middle, and 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 bottom of the funnel, and and what are your behaviors, and and how much you were spending to to across all of them, is by far the most important piece for a direct to consumer business in terms of profitability.
0: Yeah, for sure. How do you think about optimizing marketing spend for maximum profitability? Like, if you hit a certain limit with a channel, are you like not scaling it further, or how do you think about that?
1: I think that's it, right? I think you have to have, you know, you, you blend them up top, right? You know, overall, but you, each channel has to have its own metrics and those metrics are fueling it, right? So if we're, if we're overachieving the, you know, our return on ad spend, like we're, you know, not spending enough. And then you also need to know when you need to slow it down and then having the different levers of where you put that money, if you slow and then where the money comes from as you, as you scale. But I think as a, as a smaller business relative to a lot of businesses, you know, we're still at a spot where we're just now, I think getting to the spot where we feel like we might have maximized, you know, the meta properties where we think we, you know, we still are really efficient there, but our biggest challenge is diversifying our channels of acquisition. So, uh, finding, And investing heavily in other channels to bring customers in—that's that's that's where we're focused right now. Uh, But it is like, you know, getting efficient and and understanding that, but having multiple layers—it's like you know you don't want all your money in one spot, um, you know, personally, and then also your ad spend needs to be spread out. So it is kind of that balance of when you go, when you put more in it, when you take it out, and then where do you move it across the lines? Is 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 all? I mean, that's the the, the, the recipe, right. If you, if you will, with,
0: with direct consumer marketing. Yeah, for sure. When you came into the brand, did you have any like direct marketing experience? None, none,
1: none. (laughs) And was that something you were
0: doing from day one? No. Okay.
1: Um, it was, so we, when we flipped and decided that we were going to do this business model, you know, being a small business, not having a lot of resources, we knew, we needed to have some expertise come in. And so how we built our our organization was a small core team surrounding it with experts that were very good at very specific things, you know, scaling our sourcing, uh, an email guy, um, you know, paid social, something like, but the most important thing we did is how we built our board of directors. So we were never going to be able to afford a world-class marketer on on our staff. So we went and added, added somebody to the board of directors and he was a, Brilliant direct-to-consumer brand marketer who sat with me for five, six years and built this infrastructure. I I didn't have any, it was marketing 101 on a lot of this stuff. And he called in favors with some agencies that that slowly built the infrastructure and and we found partners together and, and he spent a lot of time like teaching me um the ins and outs and the language and the terminology and and just enough to be able to direct. And work with people on it, but I I didn't know anything about it, and it was bringing in experts to the business that were very good at very specific things. But it was led by um, a guy on our board who who helped kind of build it along with me.
0: That's awesome. And was he mostly advising on like strategy, and then you would go and execute? So he was at least like laying the framework, or was he even like helping get his hands dirty as well?
1: He, he got his hand... in the early days. He definitely got his hands dirty.
0: For sure. sure nice. He was
1: right there with me. He was on calls, you know, we were vetting agencies together. We would sit and talk about the performance, you know, after a while, um, you know, and now like I, I understand and I can, I can hold, you know, agencies and, and, and teams accountable for the metrics and the the targets we established together. You know, you don't want me in there doing the actual work, but I, I understand enough now to, to be able to lead and, and set expectations and targets and stuff like that. So, not like that, but in the early days for sure. And that's and that's why we hired him. We didn't we didn't hire a, you know, a veteran CMO that is used to managing a hundred person org and is just a really yeah. good people manager. We managed somebody who has experience in small direct to consumer businesses that understands, like just like the the Zappos order. We all rolled up our sleeves and we got it done. Right. He he knew he was coming in here to do this and that it was going to be rolling up some sleeves and in and, and getting getting his hands dirty with us. And that was that was exciting for him. So it was it was a it was a perfect fit.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. It probably was fun. Yeah, I mean, that's just like um a really I I love the way you lean on the board for so many things. I think so many like bootstrapped founders could like just be a lot less stressed and take a lot more shortcuts by having even if it's not like an official like you know, board of directors with investors, but like even just like an advisory board that they could lean on who actually has experience and can like shortcut things or make intros. Um, I know it's like a lot of founders who do have that, like they're able to hire quicker. They're able to like shortcut things that, you know, a lot of the lone wolves aren't necessarily able to.
1: It's, it's the one thing I, I tell everybody, I mean, it's being a founder, and you know, or working in a small business in capacity, it can be really, really, really lonely and it can be scary. And you think that you have to know everything or, it till you make it. And it once you realize that there's so many people going through the same thing that maybe are you know know something that you don't know and you might know something they don't know. And if you just connect with people, um, they'll help you out, right? And so we we built a board that was four or five people that have really great experiences that will allow me to have thought partners um around really strategic things and challenge me, um, you know, things that I didn't get in the day-to-day business. And um, also could help guide us with our strategy and our foresight. And, you know, one of them introduced us to the guy who ended up doing our supply chain. Right. So she was like, Oh, we're going to make the shift. I know somebody who has all the networks in South America. Right. So it was just in marketing. It was just as valuable in, in some of the other pieces, but it is, you have to build a network. You have to build an advisory board or have two or three people in your business that will call you on your bullshit or challenge you will open the Rolodex for you. Right. And and push back because we all love to think we're you know doing everything right and you need to have people like well hold on that's have you thought about this or i tried that that didn't work um and and feel comfortable saying i don't know um to these people and let me get back to you and and stuff like that but i think you're right like you can't just do it on your own
0: yeah what are you know as we start to wrap up here thinking about your transition from the corporate background to the D 2 C background. What have some of the biggest lessons that you've learned been from that experience?
1: I think the one of the big lessons was to be okay like saying I don't know and not pretending like you you know everything or pretending like to that you can't be vulnerable enough, vulnerable enough with certain people to say I don't know. Right. And there is that mindset of, you know, the fake it till you make it. And, and in some instances, you have to do that in certain situations, but you also have to realize that can get you in really a lot of trouble, spe- you know, especially when you're talking about finances and money and things like that. So trying not to just navigate conversation to conversation that it's it's okay to say, I don't know, let me get back to you on that. And when you come back to them, it's fine. Um, And so I think that and also figuring out how you get talent in your business and it is really hard and expensive to find a talent and a lot of times it's easier to find 20 percent of an a talent person that will help you with your business on a very specific thing than going to try and hire um you know a generalist that's kind of good at lots of different things. Now those are helpful but don't dilute your talent just because of that. Like you can find experts at very specific things. And, you know, find a don't try and find a general marketer that can just kind of do lots of things. Go find a an email marketing agency like yourself that's really good at one specific thing that can help you for a portion of your time. So be creative with your resources. Don't be afraid to say I don't know. Um I think the other one is going back to scale like build your build to scale, right? Your supply chain, your fulfillment, your acquisition costs, your your people structure, like build it so that it, it can withstand 3X, 4X growth. Like, you know, a supply chain that can produce, a, you know, if you're doing $5 million, a, a, make sure you have a supply chain that can do 50 and you have a fulfillment center that could could handle that, right? Because if it's, if it's coming, it's coming and you certainly don't want it to be too late.
0: Yeah. And I was going to ask to to your last point, when you're talking about like, be prepared for scale, I was going to ask what that looks like, but you perfectly described like specific examples of what it does look like. I think so many people like bottleneck that it's like, oh, I don't want to invest for the future. But like once something hits, it hits. And especially in like the digital world, you really have to really have to jump on that.
1: It doesn't always have to be that expensive. I mean, the worst thing you can do is go you know, do 10 million dollars one year. And you know, the the typical small business founder story is to throw a projection, you know, they we call it the hockey stick projection, right? It's like well, I did 10 this year, I'm gonna do 30 next year, and you <laughs> you hire internally your infrastructure around 30 million, and then like you do 20, which is fantastic, but you you know, so we all know that story, but it is like, you know, think about the 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 pieces, fulfillments like I think the perfect one, right? Like you might right. be able to fill your product out of your your office you know self-fulfillment but you know now all of a sudden your customer service person is not answering and interacting with customers they're they're shipping 50 to 100 orders a day right but if you have a 3pl that they can handle 100 orders a day but they can also handle a thousand right and those yeah. are and it doesn't cost you anymore right it's probably cheaper and more efficient so just finding those little little pieces
0: Yeah. And I think even like especially small brands that do like ship themselves, it's like you're probably subconsciously holding back your growth because you don't want to like do the extra work that's going to come with it. Like if you knew you didn't have to fulfill every order yourself or like, you know, rely on like three people coming in your warehouse to fulfill it yourself and like maybe they're flaky and they don't always show up. Um, I mean, who knows if you're really trying to move the needle?
1: Well, if you also just have to like, be honest, like, what do you, what do you like to do? Like, what are you in the business of? If you're in the business of like yeah. making, selling product, like you should do that. Like we didn't want to be in the business of like shipping orders. So we found somebody who was in the business of shipping orders to ship our orders and, and to have to warehouse our stuff. So what do you want to be in the business of? And I think it's, it's good to know that and focus on that stuff.
0: Yeah, totally. Um do you follow like the shoe industry in general? Like do you follow companies like Crocs for mm-hmm. example like in the public markets? What what are your thoughts on their acquisition and like rapid growth of Hey Dude? Have you seen that at all?
1: I don't know if I've seen that. What is what is Hey Dude? Hey Dude
0: that. is like it's like a Croc-ish shoe um it's like it's like a lighter boat shoe that was kind of under the radar um which crocs bought for like let's see what the actual price is 2.5 billion dollars and um the brand at that point was doing like half a billion in revenue or something anyway basically the numbers just came out in a year they like doubled the revenue of the brand from like 500 million to a billion or something crazy like that with like you know 35% 35% EBITDA margin, or whatever. I'm probably making these numbers up. Like, you'll have to go look it up. But, uh, yeah. I ha- how does a company even do that? Like, you have the Adidas background. Like, what did they do to the company to be able to scale it that much? Just What's like and, and what does distribution mean? Like, get it I mean, in I mean, stores? I, like, you just yeah, put I mean, it there it, and people it, buy it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would think that, I mean, they already <laughs> have following. If, I mean, if they're doing 500 million or whatever it was, and, and they were sold for two billion. They already already have like a probably a loyal community that is around it. Okay. And that at that point they have a message that is resonating, and it's just a matter of scale, right? And so you think of just plugging into the Crocs infrastructure of distribution, and Crocs says, hey you know, we're in your doors and now you need to have hey, dude in your doors. I, I don't know enough of it, but like, that's, that's the scale. That's the leverage. Right. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it didn't, you know, when Adidas bought Reebok, you know, it was one plus one equals 2.5 and it didn't work out. One plus one equal 1.5. Right. And so, you know, acquiring these, you know, we've seen this in a lot of industry. I mean, when TaylorMade bought Adams golf, they thought these two brands could complement each other. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you're seeing over yeah. and over that once your core business, you take your eye off your core business that and you get distracted with other things, um, uh, it affects your core business, right? And so uh, but this is now I've got my homework for the afternoon. I gotta I gotta look into this because I yeah, it's I really good. Heard I heard about Crocs and I when I dropped my kids off at school, I was like it went from Crocs were on the kids and now the Crocs have the little shit, I'm aging myself here, the the, the little, gibbet
0: thing. The gibbets on top. I only of the know because I re- read their annual report, like, and it's like you know per- significant percentage of their revenue.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, that's the new thing. And I'm like,
0: so. I know. I do think I think they did get lucky with like Gen Z saying like, okay, this is cool. They could have gone either route. Like, this sucks, and the company would have died in 2016, which I think was on pace to do. But instead, Gen Z is like, nah, this is awesome. Like Gen Z and below, and so because it's cool. You know, they have another decade or who knows, at least another generation or two to ride. Um, But we'll see. I'm really curious what's going to happen with a company like Skechers. Like, is it going to be... I don't think it's going to be cool enough for people in the future. I don't see it lasting another like 10 or 20 years with the numbers they're pulling now. Maybe I'm wrong, but...
1: I think there's a lot of like really, really interesting case studies out there, like Skechers for its own reason. I think Allbirds will be fascinating to watch over the next three to four years obviously their stock has not performed but like they're going right. through a transition of they were really cool everybody wore them they had an amazingly comfortable product but like what do they evolve to i think watching on um, oh yeah on's you know, on, crushed like, it they've crushed it and they, they took advantage of adidas and nike kind of pulling out of some distribution which they're going back in like what is what is you know is on more than are they more than what you know, that one silhouette, like how do they evolve their technology and how do they sit into lifestyle? And like, it's just, it will be fascinating. I think those are two on and all birds. I'm really fascinated to see how they evolve and can they sustain their, their cultural relevance beyond, you know, what they've already done. So those are a couple that I'm kind of watching.
0: Yeah, same. I find the footwear industry very fascinating, especially on like, they have like one or two colorways, in my opinion, that are like really good um all the same silhouette like you're saying but then they they post their you know they put out their earnings and it's like holy cow like it's everybody's buying on shoes but yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see well i really appreciate you taking the time to come on share your expertise from you know your entire background from adidas to Tailormade to helm i'm excited to um you know see you know where the brand continues to go and um yeah as we sign off here any place you want to send listeners
1: um, Helmboots.com. Um, come check us out. You know, it's always contact at helmboots.com, where I still read every single email. So read, you know, send us an email. If you got any questions, you know, we're we're kind of hands-on and and I'll see everything. So helmboots.com or send us an email at contact at helmboots.com.
0: Awesome. Sounds great. Um, we'll link that up down in the show notes below. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been great to chop up the footwear industry with you. Uh, I learned a lot from this episode and um never buying another pair of shoes again now that i know they cost 15 bucks not ours
1: not ours, <laughs> not ours.
0: i didn't say boots i didn't say boots okay. Um uh, but no brad thanks so much for coming on the show all
1: right thanks for having me
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the Waybreak podcast Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day.